Thank you, Father, for that reassuring truth. We are weak and frail, and this uncertain season has reminded us not only how frail we are individually, but how frail and undependable the world is. Help us turn to you. Make us wise not to turn to ourselves and be angry or fearful or try harder and be more and more self-reliant and exclude you, but help us turn to you and grow as your children. I pray that through this national uncertainty, many who have tried everything else would finally be humbled and turn to you and be saved. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Do you have your Bibles? Here in the room and at home, if you have your Bible, please, you'll need it as always. First, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 91. This has been called a national day of prayer. And we pray every day, but it's good for a country to humble itself, recognize its limits, and even as it exercises its own responsibility, turn to the God who rules over the world. So I'm going to read this 91st Psalm, and then we're going to spend a few minutes in prayer together. Let me suggest a way to pray that I was taught years ago, and that is simply to begin with yourself and in increasing circles, move outward. So pray for yourself and then pray for your family. Move out a little further and pray for your circle of friends and loved ones. Move a little further out and go to your community, your workplace perhaps, and eventually grow that circle out to where you're praying for uh, people in, who have public platforms and power and influence to guide us and to lead us through this difficult time. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord God your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you foot, strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him 
and show him my salvation. So there at home, by yourself, with your family, with your friends, here in, here in our church sanctuary, let's just take a few moments, and you pray as the Lord leads, but I suggest that we begin with ourselves and, and move out so that we pray for people that are far beyond us. Heavenly Father, Your Word says directly, specifically, that we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Holy Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep to be expressed with words. I pray for the brokenhearted and the fearful. I pray, Lord, that they would turn to You and be blessed, and those who don't know You would be saved. I pray, Lord, for those who are leading our community. I pray for people like nurses and doctors and first responders who will leave their families behind and go to work because they are needed. I pray that you would keep them safe and that they would be a blessing and represent all that their authority and their influence and their education has given them for prominence, that they would represent themselves and you well, and that they would be an instrument of blessing. I pray, Lord, for hourly workers and for people who are unemployed and in struggling companies who are already under financial pressure. I pray for parents who suddenly have to decide what to do with their children, for many school teachers and all of their students across the country, Lord, that are making adjustments, trying to cooperate. Lord, there's, there's too much. It's too much for us. Thank you that you know it all, you care about it all, and we can turn to you and be safe and be blessed. So give us a heart, Lord, to continue to pray to you for one another. Help us be hospitable in these difficult days. Help us to be loving. Help us to care for those in the church, Lord, who may be locked in and, and cannot provide for themselves. Help us to truly be a spiritual family and to shine brightly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. America loves a rags-to-riches story, and there's two really varieties when it comes to thinking about both rags and riches. We love rags-to-riches of someone who rose to prominence. And we also like sometimes, some of us like the darker story where someone who is way up high and acting proudly is brought low. One of the constant themes in the Bible is that God's perspective is actually often, not always, but very often the opposite of ours. So we are taught, for instance, that when we are weak, it is then that we are strong. We are told that those who are weeping are blessed because they will be comforted. We're told that it's the meek that are going to inherit the earth. We're told, Christians are told, when they are persecuted for the sake of the name of Jesus, then they should be blessed. They should know themselves blessed and they should rejoice. It's upside down. Jesus said, if you want to, if you want to rule, if you want prominence, then you should be the servant of all. And that those who come first in the world will 
end up last in the kingdom, and those who are thought of to be the last and the least in the kingdom on earth will actually be prominent. They will be first in the kingdom. And Luke 16 is a difficult passage, so difficult that as this day approached, I wondered whether I should change it. But I, I think it's timely. See, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke for a very long time, and we've landed at this story at the end of Luke. If you'll look with me there, please, in Luke 16, you're going to see one of these stories that is both rags to riches and riches to rags. You're going to meet two individuals who flipped their position in a moment. In Luke 16, Jesus has been talking a great deal about money. He told in a difficult and strange parable, he told a parable whose point was that people on earth should use what he calls unrighteous wealth. In other words, use the resources, use the money they have in this world so that when they arrived in heaven in God's presence, they would be welcomed there into a home that would last forever. The religious crowd understood exactly what Jesus was trying to tell them. They loved money, and when they heard this story, it says they mocked Jesus. So Jesus continued to teach and to challenge them and turn this world of theirs upside down that is still prevalent in our world. In Jesus' day, the religious thinking is this. If your life is going well, if you are wealthy and successful in this world, that means that you must be a righteous person, and God loves you for it and is blessing you. Jesus told a story, considered a parable in Luke chapter 16. Just one interpretive note for those of you who are serious Bible students. I grew up believing and being taught that what Jesus is telling here in the story of rich man and Lazarus was a historical event. It very well might be. Through study, I've become convinced it's actually a parable. One of the reasons that people thought it was a historical event, because if this is a parable, it's the only one of, parable, of Jesus' parables that had names a person. It doesn't really matter ultimately, and we can't be entirely sure if Jesus is reporting something extraordinary in history that he alone knows, or he's telling us a parable. The truth and the teaching is the same. And if it is only a parable, nobody should minimize its teaching. It's as severe, it's as shocking, it's as big a blessing if you heed its warning as if it actually happened to two individuals. Two individuals are going to have their lives flipped in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus teaches, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, that's as good as life gets, and those are literary details, whether this is a historical event, and in Jesus' retelling, he's telling you the life of a real person, or he's using literary details to tell you a dramatic parable to, in, to illustrate a very real, practical truth. In first century Jewishness, in the culture of Jesus' day, that little verse that there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day, all of that is intended to tell you this man is at the very top. If he lived in America today, we would call him a one percenter. He's made it. 
He would be on the cover, perhaps, of People magazine. He would be pursued by the paparazzi. This is a tycoon. This is a captain of industry. This is an influencer. He's made it. And at his gate, Jesus says, was laid a poor name, a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what, with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And I've told you before, as you read the Bible, it's important that you read it with imagination, not to make things up, but to see what you're being told. This man's situation at the man's gate is as dramatically disastrous and pathetic and tragic as the rich man's life is luxurious. He's at the rich man's gate. In other words, in the first century, where property was so precious and so very few people lived in wealth, this man has a gated house. A poor man is actually dying outside the gate. And he doesn't want to be brought a meal from the rich man's table. Do you see what he, all he wants for himself? What is it that he wants to be fed with? Scraps. Whatever happens to fall from the rich man's table, that's all he wants. But he's not given that. In fact, he's so weak, so diseased, dogs came and licked his sores. And that's another brutal detail in first century Judaism because dogs would have made this man unclean ceremonially. He's not only dying in public, just a few feet from more wealth than he could ever imagine. He's so worn down and weakened that actually dogs are coming to lick his sores as he dies and he evidently raised under the Mosaic law, would want nothing to do with this, but obviously he's too weak even to defend himself and shoo the wild dogs away. Here comes the twist. Here comes the flip. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. No one listening to Jesus could have seen that coming. The poor man, the miserable man, the one who by his life is assumed to be far out of God's favor, very much obviously in their religious understanding, a wicked sinner, he dies and in that moment receives an angelic escort into heaven, into glory by Abraham's side, literally into Abraham's lap, into his bosom. He's brought, in other words, into the presence not only of God but of God's people. The rich man also died and was buried. And there's another little detail. No one buried Lazarus. No one cared. Someone, just out of concern for the community, someday carried his body away. But the rich man was buried, certainly, from the wealthy, the ceremonies of the wealthy I've been part of all these years later, certainly with pomp and circumstance, certainly with remembrance and with honor and spending a great deal of money, but his destiny is quite different. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, in hell, in judgment. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. And that must have been the shock of this man's life. 
living his entire life believing mistakenly that he had God's favor, God's salvation, God's forgiveness, to suddenly find himself in judgment instead? And to see from that judgment that it's actually Lazarus who is blessed and saved? And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. This is a short Dramatic, shocking story, but it offers several lessons. Here's the first. Here are the lessons about eternity from this shocking story that Jesus told to self-confident religious people who trusted in their money. Here's the first lesson. Earthly blessings make no eternal guarantees. I studied this passage several weeks ago. I wrote it long before we found ourselves in our current, present national crisis. And as I considered whether we should just carry on as normal and stick with the gospel of Luke, I looked again at a sermon I wrote several days ago, and I thought just how much the news and how much people's circumstances and how much people's fears have shown us again that this is true, that earthly blessings make no eternal guarantees. This rich man had been conditioned by false religion and by self-confidence to think that his blessings would continue in the next life. One of the reasons I became convinced, and again, it's not actually important. I'm not dogmatic about it. This may actually be a historical event that God orchestrated and Jesus alone is telling us it doesn't matter. The truth of the story is the same. But one of the reasons I became convinced that this likely, again, not certain, but this likely might be a parable, is because of the name of Lazarus himself. The name Lazarus means God helps. And I think it's a literary detail. I think the story is telling you that in Lazarus's life, no one on earth helped him. God alone was his help. And it actually looked in Lazarus' life as he lay dying at a rich man's gate that he had been forsaken even by God and that there was no one on earth or in heaven to help Lazarus. But the story, when it twists, when these men flip and change positions, we learn the truth. Earthly blessings make no eternal guarantees. Lazarus is in God's presence. He is enjoying favor of God and fellowship with the great men and women who have walked with God before he was. He is being comforted and enjoying life forever. The rich man is told, you've had as much blessing and as much comfort as you're going to have. Earthly blessings make no eternal guarantees. But there's more. Verse verse 25 Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. A second lesson that this story is telling you is that what you do in your short and fragile life matters forever. 
What did Lazarus do for God or for others from this short little slice of life that you're told? What could Lazarus at the gate have done for someone else? Evidently, not much. What had the rich man done for others? Much less. You see, it was within his power, certainly, to, you, to help a poor man whose name reminded others that God was his help. He could have sent help. He could have sent food. Mercy was within his reach. He did nothing of it. And that is telling the true story of this man's heart. To be clear, the Bible knows nothing of anything like karma. What the Bible speaks of is a loving, holy, just, and merciful God, all of those things at once, who will deal with people in eternity according to their deeds. And that everyone in the world has sinned and failed this God, betrayed and ignored this God, failed and sinned also against others. And that no one on earth, through his own confidence, through his own righteousness, through his own goodness, can have anything, can expect any favor or any blessing from God at all based on their own good behavior. What you do in your short and fragile life matters forever. This man had evidently turned his back on not only God, but also on Lazarus. Here's the warning the rich man ignored. Proverbs 21 verse 13 says, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Here's how Proverbs work. They're short, punchy sayings. They don't tell you everything about a single topic, but they deliver one big spiritual truth. They're short on purpose. They're Proverbs. They're not musings, they're short, wise, true sayings. And the rich man would have known this scripture and known the heart of God that one of the marks of someone who walks with God is to help the poor, to care for the poor, to be generous and caring for those who have less than he does. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. This is what the rich man's sin is and it looks like in judgment, it continues. He hasn't learned much. In verse 24, he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And again, I've told you over and over again, when you read the Bible, read the Bible. How? Slowly. Even in judgment. This man wants Lazarus to wait on him. Did you notice that? Even in judgment, far from God, seeing what he missed, he says, send Lazarus, who I ignored, who I let die at my gate, send Lazarus to serve me. And Abraham says, no, this is over. The warning is that whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Now, the rich man, having ignored God's word, having ignored God's heart, his entire life is crying out again for something to be done for him, but in eternity, he is not being answered. But here's a promise. 
And this is why this story of rich man and Lazarus ends in Luke 16. Jesus is tying together all of his teaching about money and using a final shocking story to try to encourage his disciples to use their resources to bless others, to bring God to others, to bring the gospel and the mercy of God to other people, and also at the same time to warn those who are self-confident and thinking that they know the West and they know their way through life to remind them of what money should be used for. Those of you who are here, you're welcome to join along at home as you watch on the internet. But let's read Luke 16, verse 9 together. Here, Jesus says, is the true purpose for money. Will you read that with me? It says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. We were here a few weeks ago. Let's read it again and see if we can tell in our own words what Jesus is teaching us. Luke 16, verse 9 says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What is money to be used for then, according to Jesus? People online can't be heard. They're answering, and they're getting it right at their laptop and at their desktop and at their smart TV, but I'm going to need the few of you who are here who came to help produce the service, I'm going to need you to tell me what Jesus is saying here, unrighteous wealth, money on earth should be used for. To influence people, to make friends for yourself so that when the money gives out, what's going to happen in eternity? They'll be in heaven waiting for you. The best use of money on earth is to help people get to heaven. The rich man ignored that. He made it all about himself and betrayed a heart, gave Sure evidence, if anybody was paying attention and ignoring religion and listening to God, he was giving a daily picture every day that in spite of his blessings, he didn't know God at all. He didn't love God, he didn't trust God, he didn't know God, and that could be clearly seen by the way he treated his fellow man, including the beggar that was dying every day being licked by wild dogs on open sores just outside his property line. The warning is that those who ignore the poor will someday call out for help and not be answered themselves. The promise from Jesus is that we can use earthly resources, our time, our love, our counsel, our money, specifically Jesus is talking about wealth, so that when the money gives out, when we don't have any more or we're not healthy or well or alive enough to spend it, The people we have blessed, the people we have helped with the gospel, helped to bless, they may someday receive us into God's own home. That's the promise because earthly blessings make no eternal guarantees and whether you're rich or poor, what you do in your short and fragile life matters forever. The rich man's choices mattered so much they sent him to hell. Lazarus' faith, though that's apparently all he could express, being able in his terrible condition to be of no use to anyone else, his love and trust in God alone, the God who helped him, that alone meant for him that his short, fragile life was rewarded in heaven. 
And here's really the heart of the story. Here's the most difficult part. Verse 26, Abraham says to the rich man, besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. This picture that Jesus is pointing to, whether it's relaying a historical event or he's telling a shocking parable, this part that there is a gulf between the rich man and Lazarus now, and that the gulf that separated them on earth is much bigger now in eternity, tells us this third truth from this story. God's judgment is inevitable and irreversible. It's almost a cliche and almost a point of mockery to talk about preachers as hellfire and brimstone preachers. And I heard a lot of those when I was a kid. Here's where they went wrong. They went wrong not in speaking of coming judgment, but those who went wrong went wrong in speaking of coming judgment and seeming so happy about it, seeming so self-righteous and so self-assured that they alone had understood they were smart enough, they were good enough, they were humble enough. The truth is, all across Scripture, including this shocking story, there is a God in heaven who loves righteousness and hates sin. There is a God in heaven who will someday bring judgment, and it's inevitable. We're all building a life in the face of an oncoming storm of God's judgment where our deeds, our thoughts, our motives, everything about us will be examined by a holy God. And when we step back a little bit and think just a little bit more meditatively, a little bit more deeply about God's justice, the truth is every single per person on earth actually wants justice. We've had these crazy lines at the grocery stores. Have you joined one of those yet? Have you? I haven't. I've been able to stay out of them so far. But I saw one this morning, and I saw people lined up outside of a grocery store, beginning to gripe at each other because someone was trying to cut a line. You ever yelled at a line cutter? Ever cut a line and been a little anxious because you were afraid that you were going to be seen and discovered and get yelled at? Now, what's that it's all about? Why are people that way? Because people are interested, even in a short line, they're interested in justice. They say, hey, man, the end of the line is back here of even a small thing like getting six people ahead of us in line, maybe costing us two minutes, that offends people's sense of justice. Well, imagine all that God, if He truly is a God who knows all and knows every heart, imagine all that God sees and knows about human beings. Imagine your every thought and motive open to the knowledge of God. You comfortable with that? If it's only March, if your entire life, thoughts, deeds, and motives 
were laid out in a way that everyone could examine them? Would you enjoy that? No, not for a moment. That's why every single person on earth deals with shame and deals with guilt. Those are poor ways, broken ways of pointing to something that God has put in your heart that every human being tries to ignore, that God's judgment is coming, it is inevitable, and it is also irreversible. Once judgment comes, that's it. This time, this life is the time of mercy. Here's how the Bible expressed it. This is a story. Here's the biblical truth that stands behind it in Hebrews. It says, and it just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. This is life. We know that when we are born, we are born, and we're slowly dying day by day. It is appointed for human beings to die a single time. No karma, no reincarnation, one precious, fragile life on this earth, and after this life comes what? Judgment. And every act, every motive, everything that guilt or shame pointed out to you was wrong, every time that your conscience approved you and said that was right, that was a good thing, you were the good guy on that one, all of that is laid bare. All of that is known by God. That's why this matters so much. That's why moments of individual or community crisis are so important. They're heartbreaking, but they're crucial because they wake people up and have the opportunity to shake us out of denial to realize that the life that we're so good at thinking will last forever won't. And we are appointed to die once, and after that death, then comes judgment. But here comes the good news in the very next verse. Here's the reason for Jesus. Here's the reason and the purpose of the life of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because it is appointed for man to die once, and after this come judgment, the very next verse says, so Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who were eagerly waiting for him. Jesus appeared to deal with the sins of the world, the sins of many. And Scripture warns he is coming a second time, no longer to deal with sin because he did that on the cross. This time he's coming to save everyone. Is that what it says? No, it says he is coming not to deal with sin, but to save those who are what? Eagerly waiting for him. To save those who prepared themselves for coming judgment by trusting in him. Not every portion of Scripture tells this story, but all of Scripture does. It's all pointing to the eternal reality that not a single man, woman, or child on this earth has ever pleased God with his life. That if God truly is holy, if God truly is just, if the standard is absolute, unfailing, holiness, righteousness, and perfection, not a single person can stand in his presence and say, God, I've done enough. The rich man in this story evidently felt that he had absolutely nothing to worry about, but one day he died. 
And in that moment, all the lies and all the self-deception was stripped away because he found himself in torment, Jesus says. He found himself in hell. He found himself in judgment. And from hell, he tried to reason with God, ask for favors, but he was told no. He was told no, God's judgment is inevitable and irreversible. And then comes the end of the story that was most aimed at the people who were listening to Jesus and scoffing probably even as he taught. Verse 20, verse 27. He said, then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. Rich man seems to be improving his character a little bit. He's thinking, perhaps for the first time in a long time, of someone else. I beg you, Father, to send, them, send him, Lazarus. Lazarus is still in the role of the servant. Send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said... They have Moses and the prophets. Now, if you've been here and you've been studying the gospel of Luke with us, Moses and the prophets is biblical shorthand in the first century. What does Moses and the prophets represent? The Old Testament, Scripture. They have Scripture. They have copies of the Word of God. They're being taught the Word of God in the synagogue. They have Scripture, Abraham said. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now, think through this story with me. This man still doesn't get it. He still wants Lazarus to be his help, his servant. But for the first time, maybe his mind has expanded a little bit beyond himself. He's concerned for his family, for his five brothers. And he says, send Lazarus to them. What's Abraham's answer? We're not sending Lazarus. What should they do? They should hear Scripture. And, La and the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. What does that tell you about the five brothers? Are they listening to Scripture or not? No, they're not paying any attention to what God said. The rich man says they'll need a miracle. My brothers knew Lazarus. They came over to the house for dinner. They walked past the gate. They saw him many times. Evidently, none of the brothers did anything to help Lazarus either because he died at that gate. But if you send them the beggar they remember, then they'll listen. Often in the parables, the last line is the punch. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Who do you think Jesus had in mind of someone who would rise from the dead? He was thinking of himself. Did the men who were standing around Jesus listening to all this, who had just been mocking him because of Jesus' teaching about money, as a group collectively, did they listen? 
No. They didn't believe God's Word. They didn't believe the Scripture. And for the most part, they didn't believe Jesus even when He rose from the dead. What is the final and perhaps the most impactful truth of the parable? It's this. If Scripture does not persuade you to live for eternity, nothing else will. A pastor friend of mine in Boston had someone come to his church for three consecutive weeks, and on the fourth week he was seeming pleased because it's a small church. He can see everybody who attends Sunday by Sunday. And the woman came to him the fourth week and said, I've just wanted you to know, I've been checking this place out. I'm never coming back because it's Jesus, 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 Bible, Bible, Bible every week. I want to hear something different. And he was sad to see her go, but at least proud that he had been so clear. And it's the same here. Scripture, 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 Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Why? Because it's the truth. See, the most shocking thing about people is that the truth of the Word of God, which speaks to their soul and pricks their conscience and pulls them to God, is so easily and so often ignored. And that's often the case for disciples as well. Scripture is the very Word of God. It is breathed out by God. It is God's expression, His self chosen revelation of who He is, what life is, and what blessing and judgment mean. And I say to myself, and I say to you, and to everyone watching on the internet, and anyone who cares to listen, if God's Word does not persuade you to live for eternity, nothing else will. No miracle, no cataclysm, no huge blessing will persuade you to change your mind if you do not listen to the Word of God itself. A blessed few, including the Apostle Paul, met Jesus after the resurrection and in a moment shifted their interpretation of Scripture and believed all that the Scripture once said about Jesus. And they were saved. My desire for you is if you're listening online or you're here in the room in this very small group of people, wherever you are in this life, that you would listen to Scripture and that you would trust Jesus as your Savior, and if you already know Him, that you would live for Him and live for eternity. Because as we've been reminded daily this week as the news has mounted and grown more alarming, this life is precious and fragile. You only have a short time of time and talent and money to do all that you should to love others, to bless others, to bring the gospel to them. So please, Crosspoint, here in the room and online, let's not step back. Let's not hunker down. People are desperate for answers. They're desperate for hope. Some very self-confident people have finally been shaken by something they cannot control to look for truth and meaning beyond themselves. So if you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior, I'm specifically asking you in the name of Christ to do so, to believe the Scriptures and be saved. And if you already know Him, that you would live live for Him from this moment forward, use all your influence, all your resources, everything that God has given you to use it for the maximum eternal good. Let's pray. Whether you're here in the room or at home, let's just seek the Lord for a moment in prayer. 
If you're not certain of your salvation, you've been religious, you've been a church attendee, you've been doing some Christian stuff, but honestly, you're not sure what will be of you one moment after judgment. I just told you. There's blessing and there's judgment. It's just on the other side of death, and no one knows when it'll come. There's no joy and glee in that statement. I'm just telling you the facts that Scripture reports and that you already know are true. So, if you haven't trusted Jesus, just call out to Him now and say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Please save and forgive me. Wash away my sin. I trust your death on the cross and your resurrection to give me eternal life. And if you're a Christian, tell Him that you'll use this day, this uncertainty, this time right here, right now, to win as many friends for heaven as you can to witness, to bless, to continue to do what a Christian should so that people will turn to the Lord. Whatever your need, whether you need to be saved or perhaps you need to get serious about following and obeying Jesus, turn to Him now in prayer. Lord Jesus, help us to live for You. Our life is fragile, all too short. We don't know how much time we have. So help us love you, live for you, love and live for others that they may know your gospel. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in this room, this little tiny group, or the people who are watching online who doesn't know you for sure, hasn't made sure of their salvation, that they would call out to you this morning and be saved and let us know so that we may celebrate with them and Praise God for it. And for those of us who know you, help us walk with you faithfully and do all we should to represent you and to proclaim the goodness of the gospel into this uncertain and dangerous world. We thank you. We love you. And Crosspoint, here in the room and online, said amen. God bless you. Folks, a final word. Watch your email online here in the room. If you're not signed up for my weekly email, please go on the website. There's a button there that'll sign you up. I'm not going to try to clog your inbox. You're sick of hearing about this issue from all sources already, but we are going to try to provide biblical content, opportunities for worship and for fellowship. We're going to remain the church because we are the church. Whether we can gather or not, we are the church. We have a God in heaven. We have a mission and a job to do on earth. So get online, get the app, do whatever you need to do to up your game. Get in touch with us, stay in touch digitally with us until, Lord willing, we can meet again on the first Sunday of April. We'll be right back here next Sunday with the same format. The services will be broadcast at 9. 10.30 and 5.30, and every service will be archived. God bless you. Father, dismiss us with your grace. Send us out as your light into this world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you.